On today's episode, we have some family Christmas movies, starting with Home Alone from 1990 and I'll Be Home for Christmas from 1998. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Today on the show, like I said, family Christmas movies. I mean, you can decide whether or not they're actually Christmas movies. I mean, one has Christmas in the title, and the other one is very set at Christmas, but I would argue probably doesn't have a lot to do with Christmas. But that's neither here nor there. I did want to mention that I've been doing a little bit of shuffling around of my episodes. You know, I have a ton of episodes recorded ahead of time and just awaiting release, basically. And sometimes I'll record an episode that I think to myself, God, I really want to put this out a lot sooner than these other episodes, just for one reason or another, just seems like a good idea. And so I generally will... I'll number my episodes based on when I recorded them. So essentially what you'll see is the numbers won't really make a whole lot of sense to you. But what really matters is that you're getting it in the order that I wanted to release it. And it's not, it doesn't, you know, obviously it doesn't really impact you at all as a listener to know what episodes what. I just figured there was a chance that people were looking at these different episodes and different numbers and things like that, and they were thinking, hey, what the hell's up with that? You know, we didn't get this episode. We didn't get that episode. And in reality, they're all coming out in due time. It's just they're going to come out a little out of order based on when I recorded them. So that's just something to be aware of. Obviously, it's not a huge concern. So I guess we'll just jump into these movies, starting with Home Alone, released on November 16th, 1990, directed by Chris Columbus. He also directed Adventures in Babysitting, and I want to say I saw that one several years ago now, and it was pretty decent. It was a pretty good movie. It was a teen movie, you know, it wasn't anything spectacular, but it was pretty decent. He also did Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, which is an inferior sequel, but it's watchable. It's nowhere near as good as the first one, and it tried to really use a lot of the same gimmicks and jokes and things like that from the first one, and it didn't really sit as well with me. He also did the first two Harry Potter movies, and I've talked about these before. I'm not super into Harry Potter. I don't dislike Harry Potter, but I also can't really get into them, especially the movies. I read the first, I think, four or five books, and the movies, they just aren't really that appealing to me. I just don't find them to be that terrific. So I just... I I like them okay, it's just I I don't need to own them, I don't need to watch them regularly, I'm good with that. And then he also did Mrs. Doubtfire, which stars Robin Williams, and I probably have mentioned that I don't mind Robin Williams, I'm not a particularly huge fan of his work, but he's funny in some things. Mrs. Doubtfire is one of those movies that I feel as though if you look at it with the right mood, it's not a very good one, it's not I don't know. It doesn't really appeal to me that much, but it's it's okay. It's it's a decent movie. It's got its funny moments and all that stuff. For the writers, we have the late John Hughes. He also did the National Lampoon's Vacation movies, which, by the way, of those four movies, only two of them are worth watching. One of them is the original Vacation, which is very funny, and... European Vacation. European Vacation is not my cup of tea. I watched a little bit of it and it just seemed really stupid and not worth watching, so I shut it off. Obviously, Christmas Vacation is a classic. It's unfortunately one of those movies that I've seen so many times that it no longer does anything for me, really. I need to go a few years without actually watching that one to see if I can maybe come back around on it. But as of right now, I'm I'm over it. I don't really give a shit. And then they made Vegas Vacation, and that one was not great. It was pretty stupid, and I, I just, 
I didn't find it to be overly funny. It was basically it it just I think the biggest problem I have with the vacation movies is Chevy Chase because I know things about Chevy Chase and how he behaves on set and things like that that I just I have reason to believe that he's not a great guy to work with and it just he's not overly funny to the point that it's like it's worth whatever he puts the people through that work on the movies with him you know so for producer we also have john hughes for the score we have john period fucking period williams period and obviously i've talked about him before you know he's done a bunch of steven spielberg movies He's done the original and subsequent Star Wars trilogies. He did the first two Superman movies, the Harry Potter movies, and just so many others. He's honestly, he's a powerhouse composer, the greatest of all time, easily. So for the cast, we have Macaulay Culkin, and he plays Kevin McAllister, and he was in Uncle Buck. That's the first one I remember noting that he was in, that he had a significant role in. And that movie was fucking solid. Previously covered on this podcast. Very great. Totally humorous. Just, you know, well worth your time if you've never seen it. Just check it out sometime. He also was in Home Alone 2, and I, I talked a little bit about that. And then he was in My Girl, which was not my kind of movie. I didn't really care for it. I thought it was kind of weak, but it was decent. It wasn't unwatchable. Next up, we have Joe Pesci, who plays Harry, and he was in My Cousin Vinny, which is an all-time favorite of mine. I would love to do an episode on that one. I'm reluctant because I've been avoiding comedy movies like The Plague because basically you have a comedy and If you're doing a podcast on it, I have a hard time not sitting there explaining jokes over and over again, and I don't really want to do that, and I don't think that's what people want to hear, so I have been just basically avoiding them. And so there's a chance that I'll cover that one, but it'll be one of those few and far between instances where I'm like, all right, yeah, I feel like doing this today. He was also in Goodfellas, which is a great mobster movie terrific cast amazing direction by martin scorsese really a great one if you've never seen it absolutely check it out he was in raging bull with robert de niro which is another martin scorsese picture and that's about basically robert de niro as a boxer and i think joe pesci plays his brother it's been ages since i've seen this movie but i remember it being good it was very well made And then he was also in A Bronx Tale. I don't really remember him so much from that, but I do definitely want to do an episode on this one too. It's it's a great one. I mean, it's got Chaz Palminatieri and Robert De Niro. It's just a really good story. It's definitely a great film. I really like it. And it's not one that you hear about very frequently, unfortunately. Next up, we have Daniel Stern, who plays Marv. And he was the narrator on the original Wonder Years show. He also did the City Slickers movies, which, not for me. I'm not a fan. I watched a little bit of the first one, and the humor was so stupid. It was just, it was really shitty and poorly written jokes that were being passed off as hilarious, and I couldn't do it, and I can't really understand what people see in that movie, but... I digress. He was also in a movie called Celtic Pride, which I watched as a child because I was super into sports and it was about basketball or a basketball player specifically played by Damon Wayans. And I mean, it was a stupid, god awful movie, but I loved it because it was about sports and that was all that really mattered to me when I was a kid. Next up, we have the late John Hurd, who plays Peter McAllister, Kevin's dad. He was in the movie Big with Tom Hanks, which is a great, great comedy from the 80s. I thought it was the 80s. If it's not, I'm deeply mistaken, but I'm pretty sure it is. And he was also in The Pelican Brief, which is one that I have never watched. It's got Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts in it. And, you know, the the reviews seem pretty mediocre on it. It doesn't seem like it's a super great movie. I might check it out sometime down the road, but I don't know. It's, it's not going to be at the top of my list. Then we have Catherine O'Hara, who plays Kate McAllister, who is Kevin's mom. And she was in Schitt's Creek for the entire series run, as far as I know. 
And she was hilarious in that. The way she played that character was so amazing. I just, her sense of humor, her, you know, she kept doing different voices because she couldn't, you know, it, it was like her character couldn't figure out who she was supposed to be. I don't, it was, it was just funny. I mean, it's a very funny show. She was also a voice in The Nightmare Before Christmas. And if you've never seen that one, it's claymation. It's very eerie and Tim Burton-y. And it's just, you know, I mean, it, it's not a bad one to watch on occasion, but I can't watch it every year. I just can't get into it. I mean, I might throw it on while I'm doing something else just to have something on, but nothing too crazy. Then last but not least, we have John Candy. And he plays... Gus Polinski, the polka king of the Midwest. John Candy did this film for $414 and worked one 23-hour day to shoot his scenes. He was also in Uncle Buck, as I mentioned, previously covered on this podcast. I already talked about it a little bit with Macaulay Culkin. He was in The Great Outdoors, which is one that I still cannot bring myself to check out. I almost want to say, and this is probably a bold statement, but I would say with the exception of the original Blues Brothers, and Ghostbusters. Almost anything with Dan Aykroyd in it, I avoid like the plague. I don't know what it is about him, especially the ones that Dan Aykroyd wrote or had a hand in directing or or writing anything for it at all, I find are just not good movies. John Candy was in Wagons East, which is one that I loved in my childhood, and I have absolutely no intention of ever revisiting it, because I guarantee it is crap. Like, it's just, it doesn't seem like it would have been a very good movie in retrospect. And he's done, you know, John Candy's done so many others. He died very young. I believe it was 1995 when he died, and so basically we we lost a comedy legend when we lost John Candy. So for the casting notes, we have Robert De Niro and John Lovitz turned down the role of Harry. And although they were already eyeing Macaulay Culkin for Kevin, Chris Columbus auditioned 200 actors for the role. Ultimately, he decided that Culkin was still the standout and officially brought him on. The role of Uncle Frank was originally written for Kelsey Grammer, but he was unavailable at the time of shooting. Chris Farley auditioned for the role of the Santa Claus impersonator, but he failed to impress Chris Columbus, who ultimately did not cast him. Alright, so here is my plot synopsis. An eight-year-old boy is accidentally left at home in a Chicago suburb when his family goes to Paris, and he has to defend his house against burglars by himself. Alright guys, let's dive right into this plot. I fucking love it. So... To start off, you know, we see this massive house in the Chicago suburbs, and this has been asked before, but it's like, what are the McAllisters actually doing that they can actually afford this house? It's so massive, I can't fucking believe it. But it's just a curiosity of mine, I've just always wondered. And there are a million people inside this house, we see, and every person in this house pays absolutely no fucking mind to a police officer just chilling right by the front door, and especially the fact that not only are they just not paying attention to him, but he's actively trying to get their attention and get them to answer questions. And they are ignoring him and walking away. And I'm like, what is th- I find this very hard to believe that they're actually not acknowledging him like this. I would say at the very least, you're going to change your behavior somewhat for, you know, a police officer being in your house or the house you're staying in. It's It doesn't make any sense to me that this is the way it is, but it adds a little humor, I guess, and that's kind of what they're going for. So everybody's getting around for their trip to Paris, doing normal shit like you would think that they would be doing, you know, they're talking about getting voltage adapters and things like that because obviously the plugs are different in Europe and all that stuff. Kevin's aunt tells him to pack his suitcase, okay? And so he reacts to this with just pure terror. He is just horrified by the idea of like, what am I supposed to do? I've got to pack my suitcase. How do I do that, you know? I don't really remember having packed a suitcase for the first time, but I definitely don't remember ever having to be taught how to do that or how to... It's basically just like, yeah, what kind of shit are you going to need for a long trip? Clothes? I mean, 
toys that you want to bring, whatever. I mean, just stuff like that. I don't, I don't think that it should be that terrifying, but I, you know, it's, it's one of those things and it's, it's more of a movie thing, I think, than anything. So the police officer finally gets some questions answered downstairs, but clearly he doesn't understand the idea of follow-up questions because he's asking them all these questions and they're giving him one word answers. You know, he's like, do you live here? And they're like, no. And it's like, okay, why are you here then? You know what I mean? Ask them that follow-up question and and get through to the the meat of everything and understand what's going on in this house. So all of these older kids are treating Kevin like complete shit, but them's the breaks, honestly. That's kid life for you. If you're younger, you know, older kids just are frustrated because you haven't developed to the point that they've developed to, and they just think you're a fucking idiot, and that's all there is to it. So Kevin goes into his brother Buzz's room, and... I guess, you know, Buzz is in there with his friend, which I find very odd that it's like, if if this were going on in my house, if I asked my mom to have a friend over, she would probably tell me, no fucking way, we're not, we're not doing this, you know, you, you can have friends over any other time, but not now, you know, I mean, it's just, with all this shit going on with them getting ready for the trip, it doesn't really make sense. So, they see a man outside, and they refer to him as Old Man Marley. Buzz gives him some bullshit backstory about him being called the South Bend Shovel Slayer. Buzz just really fucking sells this story, just for Kevin's benefit, to try and terrify Kevin. And it's just typical older brother shit, you know, just messing with him. But he's never, ever going to tell him that he's messing with him. He's going to let him believe that this guy is a murderer. And obviously, it's all made up. So the dialogue in this one's actually very well done. I've noticed, you know, John Hughes is masterful at that. It just, every back and forth feels genuine and real. And it's very cool. So the pizza guy shows up downstairs. And the cop's still standing there. And he has ten pizzas. And... I have to say, okay, as a former delivery driver, when someone doesn't respect the notion that you should hand over the money at about the exact same time that you're taking the pizza, it drives me absolutely nuts. And also, don't fucking waste the the delivery driver's time running around trying to find your money. You need to have that fucking money ready as soon as you place the order. You should be getting that money around and that delivery driver should be in and out of your house. He should not be spending all this time trying to figure out where the fuck everybody is. They talk about Santa coming and all I can think, you know, because I mean, there are a bunch, I mean, there are dozens of people in this house and some of the adults are talking about Santa coming when they're talking to the little kids. And I'm just like, can you fucking imagine if you're like going on a trip to Paris and you have these little kids, you know, wouldn't you just move Christmas up? Wouldn't you just have them do Christmas beforehand? Because it's not really fair to do it after actual Christmas and have them sit at the you know, place in Paris and sit around wishing that they had their toys with them or whatever. Just, just pull it forward. Don't fucking, I mean, are they legitimately bringing fucking presents on the plane? Are they, are they checking a bunch of presents? Is that for real? I can't fucking believe that. But they do do a pretty solid job of setting up how they forget Kevin at home. They seemingly accidentally throw his plane ticket away and his passport too, I think. And I at least I think that's what's happening in these moments. I, It's not very clear. You just know that they're focusing on that and it's showing you, hey, this thing is happening and they're throwing something away they shouldn't be and apparently none of them have any you know understanding of the fact that those kinds of documents if you saw them and they were had stuff spilled all over them obviously you're still going to want to make sure that you don't throw that away i mean that's what i don't understand so after paying for the pizza they naturally finish telling the officer that their house is all covered it's got timers on the lights it's got locks on the doors, basically everything that this police officer would need to know if he happened to turn out to be a burglar who was casing the joint and wanted to find out how easy it would be to rob the house. So Kevin creates a bunch of fucking chaos in the kitchen. He's asking around about where the plain cheese pizza is. And by the way, this is such a fucking little kid thing. I mean, 
little kids love their plain stuff. I used to get like nothing on my cheeseburgers. I used to get plain cheese pizzas, things like that. It's just, I don't know what it is about them. And he goes on and he says, you know, you know, I hate sausage and olives and onions and blah, blah, blah. And so basically Buzz is eating and he explains to Kevin that somebody ate all of his cheese pizza and they're going to have to barf it up for him to be able to have some. And Kevin gets pissed and he fucking rams Buzz and it's pretty ridiculous and this is what sets off the chain of events. So Kevin's sent up to the third floor to sleep and he asks that his cousin Fuller be sent somewhere else because basically Fuller wets the bed. And by the way, what the fuck kind of name is Fuller? Is this an actual name anybody else on the planet has? I don't understand where Fuller... That's a terrible name. Anyway... So Kevin wishes away, you know, his mom's taking him upstairs and he wishes away his family to his mom. And in his mind, you know, it actually ends up happening in this movie. They lose power in the middle of the night while Kevin's sleeping upstairs. And somehow no one in the entire fucking house has a battery operated alarm or just happens to be an early riser. So literally everybody fucking sleeps in and doesn't realize that they're supposed to be up. And then in the chaos of getting ready, you know, they don't even think of Kevin being up there at all. And I guess I'm to understand that these, that Peter and Kate have five children, five. I mean, I I couldn't even tell you for sure which ones are which, but it is wild to me, but I'm no parent, but it seems like bad parenting at a minimum, especially when you kind of keep a more watchful eye on what is definitely the youngest child. So they're getting into the airport shuttles outside because, you know, they come knocking on the door and ultimately wake them all up. So this dipshit neighbor kid comes and he throws off the head count. He's asking the drivers all these questions and stuff. And it's just, it's so annoying that this kid is there. It's like, fuck off kid. Get the hell out of here. Like who in, who in fuck's name would do this? You know? A guy tells Kate as they're leaving that the power is fixed, but the phones will be down for a while, and she's kind of like, I don't really give a shit. It's no skin off my nose. I am not going to be here to use the power or the phones. So the family manages to make their flight, ultimately. The parents are sitting first class, and the kids are in coach, and I don't know how great of an idea that is, especially with, like, younger kids. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not a terrible idea, but... You know, they they do talk about the questionable nature of them having sat in first class and let the kids sit and coach. Back at home, Kevin wakes up and he searches the house naturally, but he can't find anybody. He sees that the cars are still in the garage, so he assumes that they just haven't gone to the airport yet, of course. And I suppose, like, a little kid would probably not realize that those plans were going on for the airport shuttles. I guess that's reasonable. Kevin then celebrates the fact that he believes he made his family disappear, and he is fucking stoked. He's jumping on the bed. He's running around. He's doing all sorts of shit. He starts doing not only that stuff, but he's he starts doing stuff that he knows he's not supposed to be doing. For instance, there was a graphic gangster movie that his uncle wouldn't let him watch the night before and now he's watching it and I'm pretty sure at eight years old I would not have been phased by this fucking flick at all and it just freaks Kevin the fuck out I mean basically it's like a little bit of gun violence who gives a shit I mean I'm desensitized by like 30 years on gun violence. It, I mean, if I saw it in real life, perhaps I would be taken aback by it, but I'd, I'm not buying that that he would be that freaked out by this. So he goes up to Buzz's room and he finds a bunch of secret stuff stashed away. So he climbs on the shelving unit in Buzz's room and it comes toppling down. Basically, the wood just breaks and... I mean, I have to say, I wouldn't think an eight-year-old kid would be that heavy, but whatever. And basically, Kevin sets free Buzz's tarantula that is in a little case or cage or terrarium or whatever you want to call it on one of the shelves. And so you don't really think much of it. It's just you see this tarantula scurry away and leave Kevin be. So Kevin finds out that he's uncovered Buzz's life savings and he's so fucking stoked about it. And it's, you know, a bunch of ones wadded up and obviously it's not going to be that much, but it's probably enough to, to do something with. 
So Kate realizes on the plane that she actually forgot her youngest child at home, but the plane can't turn back at that point because she took her fucking sweet-ass time letting that dawn on her. So the burglars, Harry and Marv, pull up on the McAllister Street and they watch the Christmas lights all turn on by timer and... You know, Marv and Harry are just watching, and Harry's pretty fucking impressed with himself for knowing when these things are going to turn on. But it's basically like, if you know the fucking lights are going to turn on at 10 p.m. or 9 p.m. or whatever it is, then it's like, the fact that he knows when exactly they'll come on is a little ridiculous. But I digress. This is the way I look at movies. Don't you love it? Anyway... So Harry was the guy, I should probably mention that, he was the guy that was dressed up as a police officer that was trying to get a bunch of questions answered about, you know, what was going on with their house, if they were, you know, he was making sure they were taking all the right precautions with their holiday, you know, especially going on a trip and all that stuff. They wanted to, He wanted to make sure that they did everything they should do, or at least that was what he was presenting to them. But obviously he's a burglar, so, you know, he was really doing that to figure out what risks he had inherent in each house. So they go to break into the McAllister's house first, but Kevin realizes that these unknown men are walking around and he cleverly turns on the basement light and they scram, you know, they just get the fuck out of there because they're like, what the fuck? Nobody's supposed to be here. So if I'm supposed to write off a whole bunch of shit as Kevin just being a dumb kid, it gets very hard to believe that he's also unreasonably clever about some things that we'll find out about later in the movie. Naturally, old man Marley doesn't recognize that he's a scary old dude, and he elects not to talk, which only adds to Kevin's terror when Kevin runs into him on the street, and it's like, dude, just fucking say something. Hello, how are you doing? You know what I mean? He's not afraid to talk to him. You know, I don't understand it. So upon arriving in Paris, Kate calls the police in their town, and an officer, Balzac, yeah, that's right, Balzac, answers and eventually they agree to send an officer to check on Kevin. So Kevin's a little too scared to answer the door when the police actually come because of the whole scare with the burglars. But the police also pretty willingly give up and they make some comment about how the woman should count her kids again or whatever and you know basically just writes it off as nothing. And it's like okay all right. So the McAllisters are trying to find a way home, mostly Kate, who is probably demonstrating the most reasonable amount of concern in this moment. And then we see that Kevin has bathed the next day, I think it is, and he did this voluntarily. I would say that's probably the least realistic thing in this entire movie, for my money. When I was eight, I was not bathing voluntarily most of the time, or at least I wasn't bathing as regularly as I probably should have because I didn't really think I needed to because I was a little kid and that's just how I was. And so I just don't buy the whole, yeah, I'm just going to have a bath or a shower or whatever. No, I don't think he's doing that. And then, you know, we get that scene in this moment after he's taken a bath or whatever, and he's clearly like shaving his face and he, I think, puts aftershave on his hands and slaps the side of his face. Like, he puts his hands on his cheeks, and you can hear a sizzling sound, and I guess it's, like, burning his skin because he just shaved. I guess that's what's supposed to be happening. That's probably the signature moment of this movie, and it's just never done anything for me. I just don't understand why that's so funny. Then we see the burglars. They're uh, robbing the Murphy house now, They're doing a lot of dicking around, considering it seems like the kind of thing you'd want to be in and out doing, you know? I mean, I wouldn't want anybody to come there that were just surprise visitors, and I was wasting my sweet-ass time, you know, getting everything rounded up and all that stuff. It's like, find the shit that you want and take it and leave. So Kevin goes to the store, and he buys a toothbrush, and he wants to see if they can confirm whether or not It's certified by the American Dental Association. And man, it just reminds me of fucking retail. People asking stupid ass questions that no one ever should have the answer to as a retail employee. 
But Marley shows up while Kevin's asking about the toothbrush, and basically he decides he's going to be even more horrifying than just not talking to Kevin. He just kind of stomps in, and he puts his hand on the fucking glass counter, and you can see that he cut himself and has a bandage on it, and he just glares at Kevin and that's all he fucking does in this moment is it just fucking glares at him and it's like dude what are you doing why are you fucking doing this you clearly know that this is not normal behavior and so Kevin freaks the fuck out and you know he ends up taking the toothbrush without even thinking about it and they chase after him for being a shoplifter and he goes on this big chase with a cop through an ice skating rink and all this shit but Anyway, Harry gives Marv a bunch of shit for doing this thing where he leaves the water running at the different houses that they hit. You know, he's just giving him shit about it, and then as they're going to leave the, I think it's the Murphy's house, they almost hit Kevin with the van, and then they tail him to see where he goes, but, you know, they end up losing him at the church, and they're like, oh no, we can't go in there, not the church, you know. Which is like, yeah, okay. I mean, they basically just act like they wouldn't dare set foot in a church. No, no, no. So Kevin very sophisticatedly sets up the house with mannequins and cardboard cutouts and shit while playing music with all the lights on to just basically create the illusion of a party to scare away the burglars. Kevin has this whole bit where he orders a pizza and he uses this gangster movie to talk to the delivery guy and basically intimidate the guy. And I'll tell you, I've gotten pretty decent at editing audio and stuff and video too. And I don't think I could have managed to pull off the fast work that he makes with this fucking movie. He's fast forwarding and rewinding and he's playing at the exact right time and all that stuff. So he gets his pizza and he's all happy and obviously it's plain cheese and it's heartbreaking watching Kate at the airport as she's desperately trying to make deals with these strangers to get home, basically. So Kevin basically goes grocery shopping and gets hilariously interrogated by this female cashier that he sees there. And he says this one thing that I still say like this to this day. He goes, do you think I would be here alone? I don't think so. And that's the way I always say, I don't think so. Because of fucking Kevin McAllister. That's why I say it. So Kevin's doing laundry, you know, and like a dummy, he puts the detergent in on top of the clothes instead of the bottom of the drum like you're supposed to because he's a dumb little kid. And Harry sends Marv to check out the McAllister house the morning after the party. So Kevin plays the gangster movie again to scare Marv away, but... He amplifies the gunfire by setting off a firecracker in a pan in the kitchen, which is pretty ingenious. It had to sound pretty fucking loud. So Marv and Harry elect to stick around, even though they feel like there's a concern about who could possibly be in this house and what might have happened. But they want to basically just catch a glimpse of the men that were involved in this presumed shooting. Obviously, they don't realize that it was a movie. Then we have, you know, Kate winds up in Scranton and she can't find a flight. And this guy named Gus Polinski, played by John Candy, happens to be there and he's getting a truck with his bandmates because he's the polka king of the Midwest. I I think I mentioned that. You know, he offers to give Kate a ride in their truck. And they're basically just renting this fucking box truck to ride across the country, I mean, from, what, Scranton, is it, I mean, it's Pennsylvania, that's Scranton, right, so he's going from there all the way up to Milwaukee, I think, and that's a long fucking drive in a fucking box truck, and you're sitting, they have, you know, two guys sitting up front, and all of the the rest of the bandmates are in the back, you know, so it's like, holy shit, but Catherine O'Hara is honestly a delight in this, is she, you really feel for her, you know, I mean, you almost, want to forgive the fact that she's such a negligent parent. Meanwhile, Marvin Harry see Kevin emerge from the house, and they realize that they're being scammed, and this whole thing with these two mobsters being in there is a whole big ruse. And they decide to come back that night, regardless of Kevin being there, so they can rob the place. And Kevin overhears this conversation with them, and he has to decide what he's going to do. So Kevin goes to see a Santa impersonator as 
the Santa is closing up shop at this little, you know, shack that they operate out of, I guess. He makes a final plea with Santa Claus to get his family back, and it is fucking heartbreaking. But we get this fucking great moment where this Santa Claus impersonator gives Kevin, you know, he ordinarily he'd give the kids candy canes, but he doesn't have any candy canes. And so he gives, he, he tells Kevin to stick out his little paw there, and he dispenses like two Tic Tacs into his hand and says, don't spoil your dinner. And Kevin's like, I won't. And it's like, I don't know why. I absolutely fucking love that moment. So as Kevin is walking, he sees a happy family going into their house. And I really can't help but feel like if I was in his shoes, I might just, you know, knock on their door and hope that they'd help me out. But what can you do? It's a movie. I guess he's not going to do that. So Kevin goes into the empty church where this full choir is singing beautifully and scary old man Marley shows up and stops at Kevin's pew and breaks the ice with him and tells him not to be afraid of him. And the old man talks about his life issues and Kevin convinces him to face what's troubling him. Marley never once says to him though, hey, how come you're out here alone at night on Christmas Eve? Or, hey, you're always alone when I see you lately. What's up with that? You know, none of those questions come up. So Kevin kind of makes a friend in old man Marley, and he goes home to plan his the night's defense of the house, and he sets up micro-machines on the floor at the front entrance. He pours water on the front and back sidewalks. He hangs a heating element on the front doorknob. Then he puts a nail through a shingle, and you're like, what in the actual fuck is he doing? He runs a rope up to his treehouse, and then he's putting glue or something on a piece of cellophane and setting up a fan with a bunch of feathers in front of it. So Harry and Marv arrive at the quoted time, and Kevin promptly shoots both of them at the back door with a BB gun through the little dog door that they have, despite the McAllisters seemingly not having any pets. So Harry runs around the house and slips and falls out front where Kevin poured all the water. Marv slips and falls down the outside stairs and back, and that's for the same reason, the water. So Harry struggles getting up the front porch with all the ice, but eventually he makes it, and then he burns the shit out of his hand on the doorknob because, you know, there's a heating element on it. I don't really know about this heating element. I don't know what it would have come from. It would have to be a grill or something, but why would you have an electric heating element? I don't, I don't understand. So Marv manages to get in the basement door and he pulls a pull chain light that is actually tied to a clothing iron that falls on his fucking face and leaves an imprint. And then he walks up the tar covered stairs and steps on a nail barefoot. And Harry rushes around to the back door where he was shot with a BB gun and a blowtorch is rigged to fry his fucking head when he enters. Marv comes around to a side window and steps on a bunch of tree ornaments on the floor. And apparently those were just candy. They were not real ornaments. Harry walks into some cellophane with glue on it and has a pile of feathers blown on him. And this one is definitely more comedic than anything. It's not really that functional of a defense mechanism. The guys meet in the living room and slip on the micro machines while running to catch Kevin. So Kevin hits them with paint cans that he has on string dangling from the railing up above. And Harry falls over some tripwire upstairs as he's chasing Kevin. Marv manages to get Kevin by the leg, but Kevin finds Buzz's tarantula that we've seen wandering around throughout the movie and he puts it on Marv's face, and Marv absolutely loses his fucking mind about this spider on his face. I My problem is, I would, I, I'm not a, I don't have a lot of arachnophobia. I think tarantulas would be where I would not be cool with it, or like some of the bigger spiders, but basically, if I got a spider like that on my face, I would immediately get it off of my face. I wouldn't start screaming like bloody murder. I, I couldn't, no, I, I don't think so. So Kevin gets away from Marv and he zip lines to the treehouse from the attic. And this is the first time that I watched the movie 
with the anticipation of the stuntman, because I read that the stuntman was kind of hilarious, and it was not a disappointment at all. The stuntman was explained as a very small man, and indeed he fucking was. It just looks so funny. It's just this guy in what I assume is a blonde wig that just is very small and is supposed to look like Kevin. And if I wasn't looking for it, what's funny is... If they wouldn't have shown him from the front, it would have been fine. But because they show him from the front, you can tell. So Harry and Marv go out onto the line and try and shimmy to the treehouse across the way. And Kevin cuts the line with gardening shears. And the burglars fall onto the ground from, you know, the second floor level. Kevin calls the cops at some point, And I don't really remember exactly when that happened, but it happened. The guys corner Kevin at the Murphy house, and Old Man Marley saves Kevin from what is certain death. So the police come and arrest Harry and Marv, and they reveal that them leaving the water running at all of these houses will serve as a great way to pin all of these burglaries on them without question. Kevin settles down for Christmas Eve. He kind of sets everything up. He puts the milk and cookies out for Santa, all that stuff. We get a little more of Kate and Gus in the truck exchanging stories about how they're bad parents and things like that. On Christmas morning, Kevin awakens and comes down hoping to find his family. And no one's there, but, you know, he even looks outside just before the truck arrives and sees nothing. And then Kate arrives and comes in calling Kevin's name. And, you know, obviously there's a really heartfelt greeting of one another she apologizes to kevin for the awful person she's been kevin asks where everyone else is and kate says that they couldn't make it and suddenly the family busts in the door and gives a bunch of hugs and whatnot and kevin looks outside and sees old man marley making amends with the estranged son that you know he had talked to kevin about and also his granddaughter so he's he's obviously overwhelmed with joy and then kevin waves at old man marley you know, basically the whole thing with them showing up right after Kate got there is that they took a flight that Kate didn't want to wait around to take. And so they just took it and they just went with it. And so, you know, it's it's pretty uh, it's a pretty solid ending. And we get John Williams fucking wailing in the ending. And I just fucking love it. So praise for this movie. You know, the realism in the dialogue, as I mentioned, it's great writing by John Hughes. There are a lot of relatable characters in this movie. From all ends of the spectrum. The score is obviously amazing. And it's it's almost eerie. But it's, it's a very cool score. The physical comedy is obviously top notch. I mean that's what this movie is all about. There are some things in this movie. That I'm just like. Yeah I don't know if that's really realistic. But that's, that's the only criticism I really have. So for a little bit of trivia. We have Chris Columbus started this movie. After leaving National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Due to a personality clash with Chevy Chase. See, I fucking told you. Joe Pesci deliberately avoided Macaulay Culkin on set because he wanted Culkin to think he was mean. Catherine O'Hara revealed in 2014 that Macaulay Culkin still calls her mom. The picture that Kevin finds of Buzz's girlfriend was a picture of a boy made up to look like a girl because director Chris Columbus thought it would be too cruel to make fun of a girl like that. The boy that was used in the photo was art director Dan Webster's son. Joe Pesci was used to adding profanity to most of his scripts and kept forgetting that he was filming a family movie during his character's on-screen outbursts. Chris Columbus advised him to say fridge instead of the fuck word, and a lot of Pesci's unintelligible pained mutterings were his way to avoid cursing. The movie that Kevin watches on videotape is not a real movie, but... The footage was actually specifically created for this film. It was called Angels with Filthy Souls, along with other similar era references in the movie. This is a play on Angels with Dirty Faces from 1938, starring James Cagney. The scream that Daniel Stern belts out during the tarantula scene was filmed live on set after Stern was assured by the animal handlers that tarantulas do not have ears. The tarantula's poison was not extracted, as some have thought, 
This was all confirmed by Stern in a December 24th, 2015 post on his Facebook page. The movie originally had more scenes of the family in Paris, France, but the test audiences wanted to get back to Kevin. The concept for this movie originated during the filming of a scene in Uncle Buck from 1989 in which Macaulay Culkin plays a character who interrogates a would-be sitter through the letter opening of his family's front door. John Williams stepped in when the original composer backed out. The filmmakers jokingly suggested Williams, even though they never thought they could get him. But after he saw an early cut of the movie, he was enchanted and happily stepped in. Daniel Stern wore rubber feet for his barefoot scenes, similar to Bruce Willis as John McClane in Die Hard from 1988. Macaulay Culkin was only allowed to work on set five hours a day because of child labor laws. The crew planned out the scenes around his schedule, putting him on camera alone a lot. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 103 minutes, budget 18 million, worldwide gross 476.7 million, IMDb rating 7.7, Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 67%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 80%. Personal Rating, 5 out of 5 stars. This is an all-time favorite of mine. Love to watch it at Christmas. Can't get enough of it. It's fucking great. Alright, gang, let's move on to I'll Be Home for Christmas, released on November 13th, 1998, directed by Arlene Sanford, and she also directed some episodes of TV shows like Desperate Housewives and Ally McBeal and things like that. For the writers, we have Tom Nursall and Harris Goldberg, with a story by credit to Michael Allen. For the producers, we have Robin French, Justice Green, David Hoberman, and Tracy Trench. For the score, we have composer John Debney, and he did Hocus Pocus, which is, it's an alright, I mean, I think it's a little overrated, a lot of people fucking love Hocus Pocus, but, I mean, it's a decent movie, it's not bad. He also did I Know What You Did Last Summer, which is one of those classic 90s slasher flicks that were so popular. He did Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey, which I haven't seen in a very long time, I liked the movie just fine it's just it wasn't one that I felt like I needed to see over and over again and he also did Elf with Will Ferrell and that one is another solid one that I cannot bear to watch every single year because it's just Will Ferrell is so overjoyed that it it just it's too much for me okay so for the cast we have Jonathan Taylor Thomas who plays Jake Wilkinson and he was on that show Home Improvement and he was one of Tim Taylor's sons and he was you know I mean that show was pretty solid it, it was good for a laugh here and there I didn't mind it but you know I mean it's also not one that I'm gonna go back and revisit ever I don't think he was in The Lion King from 1994 the animated one and he voiced young Simba and I would say he did a pretty solid job in that role I, I didn't think he was bad he was in something called The Adventures of Pinocchio, which, if you ever get a chance to watch this movie, absolutely fucking do not do that. Don't watch it. It's not good. It's a terrible movie. I don't understand why it was made into a movie. Next up, we have Jessica Beale, and she played Allie Henderson, and she made a name for herself on the show Seventh Heaven, which was basically a religious show. It was about this family. I think the dad was a reverend. I don't know. It was not my cup of tea. She was in The Illusionist, which was a decent movie. It was nowhere near as good as The Prestige, but it was a good movie about magicians. So then she was in the Total Recall remake, and I still don't know if I need to fucking see this movie. I really cannot tell. I see that a ton of people are in the movie. I just, I've never heard anything great about it. She was in a movie called Stealth, which is so bad. It's basically an artificial intelligence that takes over this military jet, and they have to figure out a way to beat it, and it, it's... It really wants to be like 2001 A Space Odyssey, kind of, and it just does not stick the landing at all. Next up, we have Adam Lavornia, who plays Eddie, and he was in the movie Milk Money, and I vaguely remember that movie as being like these kids pool their milk money together to pay a hooker to see her naked, I think. I think that's the premise, or at least initially that's what the premise is. 
And he was in Beautician and the Beast with Fran Drescher, and I just can't even imagine a scenario where I would be willing to sit through that entire movie ever. Next up, we have Sean O'Brien, who plays Officer Max, and he was in Deck the Halls, which is another terrible Christmas movie with Danny DeVito and Matthew Broderick. Gary Cole plays Mr. Wilkinson, Jake's dad, and he was most notably Bill Lumberg in Office Space, and that one's an all-time great. I fucking love that one. I'll probably never do an episode on that, but I because it's just it's pure comedy to me. It, there's nothing else to talk about. And then last but not least, we have Andrew Lauer, who plays the character Nolan. For casting notes, just one, and it's kind of lame. Jessica Biel, who plays Allie, and Adam Lavornia, who plays Eddie, both starred in Seventh Heaven from 1996, in which their characters actually dated. So here's the plot synopsis. A college student avoiding seeing his family at the holidays is enticed by a bet with his dad that if he makes it home for Christmas dinner, he can have a sports car. Wowie, that is some premise. All right, so diving right into the plot, guys. For the beginning of this fucking movie, we get Jake, played by Jonathan Taylor Thomas, taking his sweet fucking time, rescuing this poor kid from a locker that he got locked in. We find out that he's cheating on tests and whatnot, so obviously he's a model of an American college student, just everything that you would think they would be. This kid, Ian, gets out of the locker, and we're slowly establishing that he's basically Jake's assistant, and I guess that's what we're supposed to take away from it. Turns out that some guy named Eddie put Ian in the locker because Jake did a shit job making these fake IDs for Eddie and his crew, Jake wants Ian to magically trade his ticket to get home for the holidays for two tickets to Cabo San Lucas, which is apparently possible in the world this movie is set in. So Jake goes off to see his girlfriend Allie, played by Jessica Biel, and she's sleeping, but she's actually supposed to be studying. Oh darn. So she tries to shoo Jake, but he keeps giving her a bunch of stuff and trying to butter her up. He hands her something, and she actually says, Eggnog? My mother makes this from scratch. Get the fuck out of here. He somehow already has the tickets to Cabo San Lucas, and I don't really know. I mean, they weren't printed out of a regular printer. They are the official tickets, and I just... I'm not really understanding how he managed to do that, but okay. Allie is annoyed with Jake when he gives her the tickets because she wants a real Christmas with family and everything. So they run into this Eddie guy while they're arguing, and Eddie's the guy that put Ian into the locker, and he's in his SUV that he's super proud of. He's openly hitting on Allie in front of Jake. Eddie decides that at this point it'll be a good idea to continuously back up in his vehicle without paying attention while talking to Allie, and then he promptly runs into a parked car. Jake is so busy laughing at Eddie that he doesn't even realize Allie has walked away because I'm I'm going to be honest with you, there's going to be an underwriting narrative in this episode, this this specific movie, Jake is a big fucking bag of shit. I, he's our main character. He's our protagonist. We're supposed to be rooting for him. But I tell you what, he is not a good person. Then we see Jake with these three jocks that he sold fake IDs to. And they're bitching about them not having worked. And he says he's going to make it up to them by loaning them beepers to use to cheat on a test. And then Jake's back in his room with Ian and... His dad calls him. His dad wants him to come home, and he found out about the trading of the tickets. And I'm still just not entirely sure how I'm supposed to think this trading tickets thing actually works as the movie presents it. Is the travel agent allowing the exchange by Jake and then is only forced to notify Jake's dad when the trade happens? Wouldn't it make more sense if they needed his dad's permission to begin with because clearly his dad paid for the tickets? Anyway, we've learned that Jake hasn't been home since his mom passed away and he doesn't like his new stepmom because he feels that his dad got together with her too quickly after the mom died. And, you know, that's totally the stepmom's fault. Totally. You got to be mad at her for that. You can't just talk to your dad about, hey, you know, this otherwise good person, you know, she would be fine, but why the hell didn't you give it a little more time or something like that? So Jake's dad lays this proposition on him and he says that if he gets home by, you know, dinner on Christmas Eve or whatever, that he'll give him the family Porsche. And it's like, okay. 
And I get wanting a semi-cool car, but there are things to consider here. Like, what a tool everyone thinks a teenager driving in a Porsche looks like. Especially with the assumption that he didn't pay for it himself. I, I'm just, I'm struggling with that one. I, I don't think you want that in your life at all. At the dad's house, the stepmom gives the dad a hard time about this whole deal that he's made with Jake, but basically Jake's dad's like, I don't give a shit. I want him to come home and that's how I'm going to get him home. But it's not like he's coming home on his own, you know, momentum. He's basically just having to be bribed to come there and it's got to be a fucking expensive car. I mean, not worth it because it's a Porsche, but whatever. So he tries to make up with Allie by showing her that he cashed the Cabo tickets back in for tickets home, which still doesn't make any sense. I should probably mention that they are in Southern California and home is in New York. Jake leads her to believe that he's just simply had a change of heart and, you know, doesn't really mention the whole Porsche thing because he's a fucking jackass. Meanwhile, Ian is sending the jocks answers to their test by way of the beepers. Eddie comes into the room where Ian is and puts an end to the production in hopes of getting back at Jake, basically. The jocks, with Eddie, confront Jake for fucking them over, and you know they're going to do something to him fucked up, but you don't know what. We see Allie waiting for Jake and not really knowing where the fuck he is. And then we see that Jake has woken up in the middle of the desert in a Santa costume that the beard and hat and everything are glued onto him. So Eddie basically just carpes the diem and offers Allie a ride home with him and she reluctantly agrees because she has no other options at this point, I'm guessing. Jake has no idea where he is and he finally finds a phone at a shitty gas station. He calls Allie and tries to leave a message, but the recording time is too short so he can't say what he needs to. She basically just thinks that he fucked her over and didn't show up. He then calls home and his dad refuses to listen to Jake's horse shit because he's clearly dealt with it before. And to be honest, I wouldn't have offered him the Porsche, so I'd be super pissy if he acted like that wasn't enough. Jake catches a ride with these old ladies that love Tom Jones, and they're going to Vegas to see Tom Jones or something. And he has some minorly gross experiences with these Tom Tom girls, and he starts throwing up, so they kind of kick him to the curb. It legitimately takes a lot to get me to hurl. And this kid's a fucking lightweight. If, if he's throwing up, like, he had to handle dentures, and it's like, yeah, that's fucking gross, but that's not throw-up material. Jake then catches a glimpse of Allie with Eddie at a different gas station while he's on the road, you know, having just been kicked out by the Tom Tom girls. Eddie sees him coming and rushes off so Allie doesn't figure out what happened to Jake. We see Eddie and Allie get a hotel that she promptly kicks Eddie out of, and Jake is just hitchhiking. Jake elects to sleep in an outdoor Santa Claus display for the night, and a man comes and kicks Jake out of the sleigh that he slept in. A man named Nolan almost hits Jake and then gives him a ride out of guilt. And this guy, Nolan, is actually kind of a trip. He's He's got a lot of the best comedy of this movie. I mean, basically, I would call Nolan the comic relief. And what I'm supposed to understand is a comedy movie. And I mean, to be honest, I haven't really had anything in the way of laughter yet, so... I'm not sure. I mean, it's more lighthearted, I guess. I'll give you that. Meanwhile, on the road, Eddie breaks down and asks Allie what Jake has that he doesn't. Allie explains that Jake is a manipulative sweet talker, only, you know, she doesn't say it like that. That's that's my words. He recites poetry to her, I guess, and I'm like, all right. While Jake is with Nolan, they see Eddie's Pathfinder and try and catch up to it. And then, you know, of course, as they try and catch up to it, they're going too fast. And so they get pulled over. And then Nolan wants to actually run. And Jake finds out that the stuff in the back of the van is stolen. And they switch seats. And Jake makes up some bullshit fucking story about how he's bringing these gifts to a children's hospital in the next town. And they almost get away with it, but the officer offers to escort them and wants to see them give the gifts to the kids because I guess he's a real fucking sentimental type or something. And there's this tugging on your heartstrings moment where this last little boy where they're giving gifts wishes to go home and be with his family. 
But nothing really comes of that at all. We don't see any more of this boy. We just have a sad moment and that's it. I guess he didn't really fit into the plot very well. And then Nolan decides he's going to go back home in the opposite direction because the whole children's hospital experience gave him a change of heart, basically. Conveniently, the officer wants Jake to come with him to help make up with his estranged wife in Nebraska, and obviously Jake is pretty fucking eager to get a free six-hour ride in the right direction, and the officer is supposed to buy him a ticket or something if things work out right. Jake pleads with the officer's wife Marjorie at this fucking restaurant, and, you know, he's trying to butter her up, and she's not falling for his shit, and Jake comes out and sends the officer in to sweet-talk to her himself, and... Jake writes him this fucking song to the tune of Oh Christmas Tree. And, you know, the officer eventually wins her over. It's pretty fucking stupid. And the whole restaurant claps and stuff. There's a little bit of further establishing what an idiot Eddie is when he's talking to Allie. And the two decide to stop at the Bavarian Village to stay the night. And Jake happens to catch Allie and Eddie kissing beneath a mistletoe on TV, and he's fucking pissed. He fucking loses his mind and devises a plan to get the bus to stop at the village to intervene and stop whatever Eddie and Allie are perceived to be doing. Jake makes up a fake organ transplant and gets the bus driver to go to the village. The way he throws the fake organ transplant together is a stretch. There's a small cooler. Okay, I guess he could fucking pull that off. And then he sees this man eating what appears to be very undercooked beef. How's he getting the beef out of this? Like, that's what he uses as the organ. How is he getting that beef out of that guy's hands? I don't understand it. So he goes into this hotel with this organ transplant and throws it away the first chance he gets. And he demonstrates some real fucking psychotic behavior by aggressively harassing the front desk clerk and... Since the clerk rightfully doesn't surrender her guests' private information, Jake uses a maid's guest list to find them, and realistically, should that really have names on it? What use would a maid have for those names at all? Jake and Allie kind of make up in what has to be the most G-rated relationship dynamic ever, because, you know, it's a Disney picture, so... Allie realizes something is up with Jake wanting to be home by 6 p.m. specifically, so he breaks down and spills the beans about the Porsche. Allie is not happy as she storms off and Jake pleads with her, and the bus people find out that Jake was lying about the organ transplant naturally, and they let Allie take his spot on the bus. Eddie and Jake ride together, and Eddie has a revelation that it's not like him to help Jake out, so he basically just ditches Jake on the side of the road. I can't help but feel like Jake doesn't have enough likable qualities at this point to outweigh his shitty ones for him being a good protagonist. Jake decides to enter a Santa race to win the money he needs to go home, and Jake has to finish the race with a hat and a fake beard on, and his ones from the desert had previously come off or been removed or whatever. So, spoiler alert, Jake wins the fucking race because the guy who paid for his entrance fee lets him win the race. Turns out that guy is actually the mayor, and he normally wins and donates his winnings, so Jake gets guilty when he hears about that, and he gives the money to the mayor. He has to make a deal with his sister where she'll pay his way home, and he just uses a password to get the money, and then he gets unreasonably pissed off when he still needs a valid photo identification to get on the plane, which he doesn't have. So... I guess he's going to sneak into a fucking kennel with a dog and fly that way because no one would be watching for that, obviously. Pre-9-11 air travel, man. That's just, that's the experience we're having. He gets to New York and tries to sneak on a train but doesn't have a ticket, so he gets kicked off of that. And it's like, man, this guy, I mean, ugh. We see his dad longingly waiting for him to arrive, and it's like, dude, he doesn't love you. Even if he shows up, it's just because he loves the car, bro. Jake rides on top of an SUV as a means of travel for a bit, but it's unclear if I'm supposed to believe that the people in the vehicle somehow didn't notice him, or if they actually just let him ride up there for some reason. I'm calling bullshit either way. So he has to actually get off the vehicle because it makes a wrong turn, and so he hijacks a one-horse open sleigh from a parade, 
he stops to make up with Allie, and she's visibly unenthused to see him. He apologizes for all of the shitty stuff he's done, and they smooch for a bit. Jake and Allie go to his house, and the Porsche's in the front yard, and Jake opts to not go in and creepily watch his family eating dinner for a bit with Allie. Once it's past the deadline, he and Allie decide to go in. His dad still offers to give him the Porsche, even though he didn't get there on time, and Jake turns him down and says that he basically needs to, you know, they they have many more Christmases to spend working on that Porsche. We get this heartfelt exchange where Jake and his stepmom tell each other their sweater sizes, and the stepmom is all fucking choked up about it, but I'd basically just be like, fuck you, dude, eat shit. And then we get the absolute best part of the movie, which is when they play Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays by NSYNC for the closing credits, and man, that is the high point. So praise, it's a good put it on so you can not pay full attention to it while wrapping presents kind of movie. Another point I'll make is that I have seen worse Christmas movies before. There's no doubt about that. Criticisms, I would say Jake is a fucking douchebag who has no business living in a civilized society. And everything is so fucking G-rated in this fucking movie that it just makes me sick. So trivia, the film's trailer shows a little boy urinating on Jake's lap. That scene was actually cut from the film. This isn't really trivia here, but the trailer to this movie makes Jake seem like he not only always wanted to go home to be with his family, but it also makes him seem like an innocent victim who fell prey to a practical joke, and that's how the events of the movie happen. And it's like, no, that's not really exactly it. So next trivia item would be Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays by NSYNC plays during the end credits. 14 years later, Jessica Biel married NSYNC member Justin Timberlake. All right. Although both Jake and Allie are college students, Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Jessica Biel were both minors at the time of filming. A couple of IMDb nuggets. All right. Jonathan Taylor Thomas's character Jake being unconscious in the desert mirrors what happens to Simba, the character he voices in The Lion King from 1994, down to the vulture and vulture sounds. Yeah, okay, that's... I guess that's trivia. And... This one is my personal favorite. This was the first live-action Disney movie to use a logo variant in which the variant is the logo, but with Christmas lights. All right, so let's get on to info and ratings. A runtime of 86 minutes, just a shade too long. A budget, $30 million. Worldwide gross, $12.2 million. IMDb rating, 5.5. Rotten Tomato Critic Score, 23%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 41%. Personal rating, 2.5 out of 5 stars. I can watch it. It's not that terrible, but it's just not great either. I would never recommend it to anybody ever in my life, not once. So, all right, everyone. Well, that was our episode for today. I really appreciate you stopping by as always. And obviously, you know, if you have any suggestions or requests or you want to see me change something, you know, let me know. I mean, it's quite the lead time if I do do what you want me to do, but you know, I mean, it, I'm I'm like 17 episodes out right now, so you know, there's there's a little bit of lead time. Sorry. All right. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.